The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Until very recently, if you were wanting to buy shares in American companies like Apple, Facebook, Google or Tesla, it is quite amazing how hard it could be. You needed either to be buying an awful lot so as to make sense of the massive fees of using a local bank share trading service as a broker, or you needed to navigate a confusing and bewildering process to get access to an international broking platform and then all the tax and hassle around that. It is not recommended. And now... An innovative new platform has started up to solve just this problem, offering people in New Zealand access to US shares and exchange-traded funds with brokerage fees at an order of magnitude under the existing big bank status quo, which may make it surprising that this startup has come from the same holding company as a big bank. It's called Hatch and is from Kiwi Wealth, the sister company to Kiwi Bank, and is a product of their focus on innovation. Because the big banking sector is ripe for disruption, and big changes coming with open banking already changing the fee and service landscape around the world, it's very cool to see that coming from inside a bank here. The general manager of Hatch, Kristen Lundman, and the head of experience, Natalie Ferguson, have made it their business to do just that. Working first with the Kiwi Bank FinTech Accelerator and then in the Kiwi Wealth Innovation Lab, resulting in this game changer. A disclaimer here is that I am a user, but only out of having wanted and then found the service and then asking them on once finding out how interesting it was. To talk the service, opening up investment opportunities and innovating in a bank environment, Natalie Ferguson and Kristen Lumman join us now. G'day, kia ora, thank you for coming along. Hey Simon, thanks. Thanks for having us. Hey, so first we're going to say... Um, Kristen, can you say hello so we know your voice? Hello, hello. And Natalie in the two. I'm the New Zealander, she's the Canadian. <laughs> hey, wonderful. Um, so so first up, having, having you both on here, um, t- tell me about how it is that you came to be getting into the innovation space in this environment. So starting with, as you'd mentioned, the KiwiBank uh, FinTech Accelerator really sparked my love for FinTech. I think New Zealand has been um, you know, slow in adopting financial change, um, largely because we came out of the GFC global financial crisis unscathed. And so we have, still have a fairly high level of trust in our financial services, um, service providers. And so um, we've been slow to you know, adopting um, the game-changing innovations we see overseas, um, such as, um, gosh, anything from Wealth Simple to you know any of the robo advisors to Robinhood, and so there's all these exciting fintechs um, that are 
democratizing um, financial lives of people um, and access to amazing instruments, um, making it cheaper, more accessible, but also um, giving people a new relationship with their money. And so I think um, that that experience with these fantastic startups opened my eyes to you know world of opportunities that we simply didn't have access to in here to new, in New Zealand. Um, we've got the technology to do it. We've got smart people to do it here in New Zealand. So I guess the timing was was right. Um, regulators were really supportive. We had businesses on board. Banks were actually excited about innovating. Um, so that started off my love of fintech. Uh, I was then approached by the CEO of Kiwi Wealth, um, who had real foresight to say, look, Disruption's coming. Um, if we're not looking at doing it ourselves, um, we know the the Amazons and the um, you know the big tech companies are going to come and do it and actually um, take over um, these these wonderful Kiwi-owned businesses. And so um, the challenge was put to me: is what might the future of wealth, in particular, um, uh, look like in New Zealand, and how can you help us along this journey? And it really gave us a blank slate um, to go and be bold, um, which is been a real key word of ours. And so I assembled a fantastic team, including Natalie. Um, and the sky was the limit. You know, we set out to do something different. We scanned the market um, and just said, we don't want to have a Me Too product. Um, and so we talked to hundreds of people. Um, we learned all sorts of problems, which... Um, Gosh, they're endless. So many problems to solve. So come on, fintechs, we can do this. Um, and um, we just um, found, you know, some really interesting ones and found a really interesting way to solve it. And thus Hatch became Hatch. Yeah, I mean, and, and just to take a step back into the wider environment as well, like with the uh, the Kiwi Bank's FinTech Accelerator program, that idea of a bank investing in a bunch of small startups and helping to, um, you, you know, provide the conditions for them to come out with some really interesting um, ideas is such a brave and cool idea. And in, in the wider kind of context, things like open banking, they are kind of in other markets allowing a lot of the stuff to happen, whether banks like it or not. And in New Zealand, that's not here yet. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what open banking is and how that kind of um, provides a backdrop for a lot of this? Sure thing. So if you think of open banking as um, accessibility to data, people's data. So the way we're looking, um, watching the UK and Australia attack it is, number one, opening up access to payments infrastructure. And number two, um, customer account information. Sounds super boring. But look, you're a customer. Um, you've got different buckets for things. You may work with three different banks. You may be a small business at a different bank. Um, and there's really no, um, there's no oversight over your financial situation. You've got probably a kiwi saver that's really hidden you have no idea what your balance is there um, and nothing's talking to each other um, and also with respect to um, payments with peer-to-peer -peer payments and all these interesting things we're watching overseas what open banking does is allow the pipes to connect from business to business so that everything talks to each other and the customer is at the center um, so that they can start to leverage kind of all this data that's being shared to create like a real transparent view um, of a perfect person's um, financial life. And um, not only that, um, but deliver it much more cost effectively. So, um, you know, say goodbye to fees um, and um, unfair advantages of kind of big, big, big banks um, of, of times that have gone by, so of times have passed. And so um, that's really what we're watching op 
overseas and very much welcoming it here to New Zealand. And it's wild, isn't it, some of the changes? Like, you know, you look at the big international players like Revolut that a lot of people um, listening might know if they've travelled much overseas, mm-hmm. where you can have like an international checking uh, card with none of the um, uh, costs of Forex transfer and just basically act like it's your home bank wherever you are in the world. And mm-hmm. these kind of things, which are, you, you know, part of this wave, New Zealand's been a little bit protected from them so far Mm. but they're coming aren't they which is really cool that you know you're working on some of these things that do remove that kind of order of magnitude extra cost that was involved. Yeah, and I think the banks know it's coming. I mean, so the worst thing possible is to have regulators saying, you have to do this. Um, It's probably better in the bank's interest and for their brand to say, we're actually open to doing this because we want to put the customer at the center. Um, We want to build these like amazing, comprehensive aggregate views of their financial lives so that we can help people budget and move money around and potentially even switch from our bank savings accounts to another one because they're going to get a better deal. And so um, I think it's probably in the best interest of the bank to start to, you know, really lead um, that process um, or effectively they're going to end up being, you know, disintermediated and just become pipes. Um, and so it'll be interesting to watch New Zealand, but I think it's probably best if it's industry led um, and um, really in c- collaboration with, with some cool fintechs and solutions. And Hatch is very much like that, isn't it, in that uh, it's taking down by a factor of 10 the fees that were involved in Uh, buying international shares. How did you land on that as the particular uh, issue out of, I imagine, um, you you know, there's probably quite a few pain points in banking that are there to be solved. I I suppose we um, started with Hatch as a sort of targeting, I suppose, what we'd call the low-hanging fruit. So we, like Kristen said, did hundreds of hours of research. We talked to so many New Zealanders in all branches of life, from all walks of life, with all sorts of financial goals and knowledge and awareness and interest. Um, And then from there, we kind of put together probably five concepts of quite different concepts. So everything from we had um, the concept of a fantasy football game that was actually share trading. So you could build your fantasy football team, um, share clubs where you band your money together and invest as a group, um, all the way through to much more of a tell us a bit more about yourself and we'll start to give you some advice. People were pretty polite about those. They um, they had a play around. They said, "Oh, this great idea. Well done, you guys." Um, and then we sort of we sort of started to look into this concept of access to the world's biggest companies, the kind of companies we're surrounded by every day. Um, so we created the first really rough picture based prototype of that. Um, soon as we sat down, opened our phone and showed it to people, they grabbed the phones off us and were madly trying to tap Tesla and Apple and saying, when can I have this? Can I be your first investor? Um, and so that was, I mean, for us, that, that when we talk about putting the customers at the centre of things, um, that's what made the decision for us. So uh, initially we thought it was a very, very small niche market that was going to be interested and they were highly motivated investors who were already investing quite actively on the share markets that were available to them. I suppose since launch, we've realized that our niche market is slightly less niche (laughs) than we thought. Um, And the the group of motivated investors is actually a lot bigger and not necessarily broken down by age or money as much as we thought. So, um, yeah, so it was basically trying to get um, to, to address the biggest calling in the fastest way, really. There are a couple of things there that, you know, I, I found it just as a punter Googling around yeah. uh, because over the years, been really interested in some kind of, you know, international businesses that, um, you know, everyone knows and that you use all the time. And, mm. and, and you can kind of see 
you, you know, you think you can see where there might be more use for them in the future. But it's been so hard and so expensive. And yeah. as these big companies like your Googles or your Amazons or your Apples have such big per share costs, that's also daunting to buy a share. So the things that really were game changing about this, I, I thought, were the ability to do fractions. Absolutely. Uh, t- tell us about landing on that idea and, and how you make that. How do you make that happen? So, so we partner with um, with global partners to provide. So, so part of Hatch is we're building a financial platform. We're not trying to build all these products ourselves, which gives us a huge competitive advantage. Um, so, we've partnered with world class companies, um, one of whom is Drive Wealth in the US. They're our US brokerage partner. So when you open an account with Hatch, you're effectively also opening your own US brokerage account with Drive Wealth and accessing it through Hatch. Um, so part of Drive Wealth's offering is fractional shares, which like you say, is brilliant. It's so fun to be able to put some money in Amazon, um, which is e- even if you lower brokerage fees and FX fees, they're still $2,000 a share. So you're still cut off pretty much. Um, so yeah, so for us, it was a no-brainer for um, your average New Zealander to be able to invest for three US dollars a trade in some of the world's biggest companies without having to put in more than a couple of hundred dollars for it to make financial sense. And that's the makes financial sense part of it, isn't it? Because there was access mm. to these companies um, in the New Zealand kind of market if you were buying um, full shares and uh, pay, willing to pay what what worked out to be kind of an 80 American plus brokerage fee, mm. pretty much the best you could possibly ever do. And by the time you pay 80 American on the way in and the way out and the Forex transfer fee, you've got to be investing kind of twenty, thirty thousand dollars at a time just mm. to kind of make it make any sense at all. And I don't know I don't know how many people listening here have twenty or thirty thousand at a time to be investing, but I imagine that's a pretty sh- small market. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and I think one of the things that um, we've become big believers in is there's a lot of myths about money in New Zealand, and I think we really smashed through some of them since launching Hatch. One of them is that you have to have a lot of money to be a savvy investor. I think we traditionally have kind of felt like that market that has twenty to thirty thousand dollars to spend is the only group who will be wanting to invest in the US share market. Um, what we found actually is that people who may only have a hundred or two hundred dollars a week um, or a month um, are equally as savvy, equally as motivated to learn, and equally as motivated to dive in and do better things with their money. Um, no one was giving them access. That was the only barrier; is um, they were cut off. So, so like I say, we thought we had a niche market. Our niche market is actually a lot bigger than we thought. And we're stunned at how long it took. I mean, we're talking. We've got the tech. It's been around. Mm. You know, APIs have been a thing um, for some time now. So I just think it's complacency of existing players in the space. And that, that you know, that we can operate the very tiny team thanks to technology and allow for affordable um, access. You know, we don't have to have humans manning phones. Um, you know, we've got naturally leveraging technology for customer support and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I think it's just... Using the tech in the right way, creating a delightful experience, um, and just you know providing easy and affordable access is is the mission. And I and we have this idea in New Zealand that New Zealanders love property. We love property, but when we started to look around, even investigating the first iteration of Hatch, what are our other options for the everyday New Zealander? You can invest in the New Zealand share market, the Australian share market, or property. Really. 
So um, so maybe this love affair with property and this property crisis is actually maybe a result of lack of access rather than lack of motivation to do anything else. Yeah, and it's often said that, you know, one of the reasons many um, local players are moving to the Australian uh, listing um, boards rather than the NZX is because there, there, there isn't the um, confidence of the local market in backing them. But, but part of that has to be the lack of options there are. And we don't see the Australian business coverage of the ASX. And it's very mm-hmm. hard to kind of have much of an awareness of um, the companies that are good there compared to, uh, you, you know, I, I imagine, and it's been really interesting when you guys have been talking about um, the, the biggest companies that people have been investing in. Everyone's heard of Tesla mm. or Amazon exactly. or, or Apple or the like. Mm. And they're so fun to talk about. Um, the great thing about the US share market as well is it's a lot more volatile. <laughs> great or bad thing, to, <laughs> depending on your attitude. Um, if you put some money in Tesla, you're in for a great ride. You and, and what we found with our investors so far, they'll put some money in the likes of Tesla and Amazon. And the next thing you know, that they're reading every article about Tesla and Amazon. They're having wild debates with their friends about it. They're thinking about the future of electricity and cars and and shopping, and suddenly we're all, by default, educating ourselves. We're understanding how the media impacts share prices. We're understanding how Twitter impacts <laughs> share prices. By a hundred, couple of hundred dollar investment, you're getting this education that the New Zealand share market just just hasn't, through the sheer lack of scale, got the ability to deliver in the same t- amount of time. And how has that been, launching this product? Uh, probably at like the, <laughs> the peak, top, yeah, probably the at top. the absolute peak <laughs> of, the, of, the, uh, of the NASDAQ's that, run, and that, then going into a period where 20% has been wiped out. That must be probably not the ideal it's great launch to lose period. people's money. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't. Um, we didn't anticipate. We were delayed a, a wee bit because we, you know, due diligence um, is so important. This is the very first time when you talk about open banking, you're talking about platforms that are plugging in partners um, based on APIs, and you have to give up a certain level of control because you're not creating everything yourself as a brand. So as a think of a bank brand now bringing someone else in-house that is dealing with their customers' money. I mean, that's a very scary thing. And it's act, that is, you know, the, the future of banking, in fact, is, um, you know, that's all this whole um, unbundling and then rebundling of the bank. And the rebundling is, in fact, going to be partnerships and marketplaces. And so I think there was this real hurdle um, to get over and this, um, you know, this extensive due diligence on this partner that now we're very good about. We know all sorts of U.S. law and regulation, um, and uh, which is helpful. And um, I think, you know, we had to jump over the last hurdle. But as a result, we were delayed in launch and um, naturally decided to launch at the height of the bull market, which is awesome. And not only that, but at the time, the dollar... um, the Kiwi dollar wasn't, um, you know, had taken a bit of a dive against the U.S. dollar. So, with Hatch, you're, you're of course having to take into account the foreign exchange. We're change, we change your money into USD, um, and then naturally this um, this new normal of the U.S. markets, um, share markets, which are volatile. And um, and then of course there's anticipation of recession and what might that be like. And so we were, um, you know, hedging emotionally that this might not have the uptake that, you know, we had um, hoped for and um, pleasantly surprised. There's just people that want to get in, see volatility as opportunity, um, recognize for the most part this is a long-term play um, and really do believe in the fundamentals of these world-class companies that are actually changing the world. They change how we behave. I mean, I read an article the other day. I think Netflix has 50% 
um, penetration in New Zealand. And so, I mean, we've absolutely changed our TV viewing habits. And this is a company that you can own a slice of, you know, through Hatch. And so it's um, the fundamentals are strong in that company. And so irregardless of the volatility that is to come, the recession that will come eventually, um, you know, we've ridden through some tough ones before and, and investors have pleasantly surprised us um, in their maturity to, to hold and ride it out. And what's great about not only do we give a platform of access, but we've given them a platform to chat in our investors club and they can come in and actually talk about it and be honest about their, you know, oh, how's everyone feeling today? Waking up, you know, and or Donald Trump tweets something and <laughs> something else happens. And um, marijuana was a really interesting ride that, you know, a Hatch Investors Club was going off about um, the options of this um, legalizing um, cannabis and, and opportunities to get in through Hatch, which there are many. And, um, and it's also given people a platform to talk about their fears, to talk about, um, you know, get advice from one another and to learn from one another, which is pretty cool. And quite honest discussion too. For every booster of marijuana stocks, there'll be people saying, well, someone's going to be a winner in this category. But, you know, before anyone's been able to legally sell much, it's probably not a great idea to have extraordinary Ford multiples on non-existent revenue. Exactly. Well, some people disagree with that, including our content person. <laughs> yeah, she's banking on it. But then there's um, there's even exchange traded funds now that are you know that represent the category as a whole. So if you you know you bank, you don't have to bank on and on one and automatic diversification there. So um, yeah, Hatch has got one thing we haven't really pushed is the amount of exchange traded funds that are listed um, on Hatch, and it's probably just a result of our early indications where people are really excited about the brands that. They know and love, surround themselves with on a daily basis. Um, but there is a lot of opportunity for us to be pushing. Um, you know, we've learned some of the things we've learned is um, particularly for women and some of these younger generation coming in is very much align values to investing. So um, exchange traded funds are a fantastic way to just quickly align yourself to a value. So anything from clean and green to gender diversity to women led companies, these are actually, you have fund managers that are developing exchange traded funds based on those, you know, assets or sorry, based on those styles. And um, you can invest in that, automatically diversify um, and align your values with investing. So that, I think there's a real opportunity for us to, to be pushing and moving in that direction. And, and same with the emerging industries as well. You might not want to back one particular cannabis company, but you might think that medicinal marijuana is the future. Put some money in an ETF and yeah. you're diversifying your risk. Yeah, t take us one step back for people who may not know about um, what an exchange-traded fund is. H how does it work that they gather together the the fates and futures of many into one thing that you can buy uh, a, a, a piece of? So exchange-traded funds, is basic, we, we explain it basically as a basket of shares that you can buy a share in. So, for example, if we talk about um, a, a cannabis ETF, it might be a range of different cannabis companies um, that they group together into a fund. And then rather than buying a share in one individual cannabis company, you buy a share in multiple um, which is spread out across multiple cannabis companies. So you so you basically buy instant diversification. Um, so once lowering your risk because you're spreading your risk across multiple companies. So um, in the case of cannabis, there's these early movers. Some will fail. Um, some won't do super well. 
But if you're buying an ETF, that, that, that sort of risk of some of them taking off and some of them failing kind of balances out. And they rebalance them as well. So probably the most common one is an index, which basically is just um, tracks exactly the index. And that basket of funds would represent exactly like what, for example, the S&P 500. That's something you can get here in New Zealand, the US um, S&P 500. And so it would be an exact representation of that index and basically just does exactly what that index does. So whatever, um, you know... Um, However big a certain share is in that particular interest is just at a micro level in, in that ETF. And so, um, but what's really cool on Hatch is not only are there e, um, exchange traded funds that track indexes, but like emerging markets and um, things like beating. There's um, ESG, so there's responsible exchange traded funds. So what they do is they would rate companies based on all these factors um, if they're uh, into helping, you know, um, into sustainable practices for the, aid the environment, if they're into, um, you know, good governance practices, so effectively well-run companies, they would group a bunch of these companies together and you could just buy, you know, the, the small slice of the mix of them, if that makes sense. <laughs> and, and as this is something talking about financial products, it's very important to mention at this point that none of this constitutes financial advice in any way, shape or form. But it is possible to say that there have been lots of studies about Index funds uh, having um, reliably so far uh, outperformed most people doing investment decisions on their own. Uh, and those are index funds where they just track the shape of, say, the top 500 companies in an index. But in terms of um, exchange traded funds, that's far more um, volatile as a result of not, it's got to do with also um, the. Uh, investment choices of the fund managers putting it together. So those aren't considered to be quite such a safe asset, are they? Well, no, it's it can be. Um, I mean, some of them, exchange-traded funds can be totally passive in that they just track a group. Um, they can be also actively managed. So an interesting point. I mean, um, we are probably one of the more controversial things of Hatch is that we have come in as self-directed platform that offer a number of passive instruments um, in an actively managed wealth company. So this, you know, there was some real talking about trying to innovate um, in a bank and a wealth company. Um, that these are some some challenges that that we certainly had to overcome. <laughs> and when the rest of the business probably o operates on some form of um, fee model, and one of your main things is that you're by making it self directed, removing fees enormously. Well, and I think, look, where I always came from was this isn't, um, we are truly democratizing, like the masses can't access private banking and private portfolios. And we simply, there's the majority of Kiwis don't have the money to access um, unbiased, really smart advice. Um, and so we're, you know, we're serving um, in large part a group of people that either, you know, can only access advice that is biased, you know, based on selling a product and or, um, you know, friends and family and, and social groupings. And so um, and then, as you'd mentioned, the access to actually act on any of this advice that they might get um, is really hard to do um, on their own. And so I think um, that that was kind of an easy story to tell is that it's, you know, we're not cannibalizing anything. We're simply just democratizing what you're doing for the masses. And, and providing an inflow of new people who are mm. educated, interested and aware, I imagine. And, and even when you talk about actively managed funds, with which KiwiWealth does do, no one person's all actively managed or all self-directed. Providing access to people to be able to make their own investment decisions, maybe they have 80% managed by an investment manager and 20% they dabble in on their own. 
that's fine. And I think sort of getting beyond that attitude of it's one or the other, that actually there's no there's no conflict there. You can do both mm. was quite a big sort of barrier to overcome. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in terms of that wider mission, um, you've mentioned before that I've seen that um, this is the start. So where, where does it go from uh, opening up? What is it? There's, there's 2,700 something uh, individual shares and 400 and something uh, funds that mm. people have access to. Where, where does it go next? Well, I think there's two pieces. The one is the US piece. So how do we actually, because when you launch a startup, um, as many do, it's um, you start with the minimum viable you know, um, product. And it's like, what is the minimum thing that we can build and get it in and actually start to build it with our investors? And that was our promise to do that. So I think the first piece is to start to get some of those things right. We've got you know laundry list of feature requests, and so we're we're knocking those off, um, rolling out trusts. You know, starting this week and into the new year, um, limit orders were launched the other day, and and I think it's that carry on of what interesting things can we do with this values um, based investing and ETFs and filters and potentially even you know some interesting way to construct portfolios without offering advice. And so that um, you know I think there's the US piece, and then there's this amazing opportunity of what's next. And I mean, the mission of access, easy and affordable access to world-class investment opportunities. Oh my goodness, there's so much we could do. There's what are so we going to do, Nat? What are we going to do? <laughs> so I think what, what we've really tried to do internally, um, especially within a corporate, is people want a roadmap. They want us to say we're going to release product B, C, D. These are exactly what they're going to be. We've kind of flipped that on its head a little bit and said we have a really strong vision and mission, world-class investments working really closely with our customers. So we don't know what those next products are necessarily going to be, Well, although I think we're starting to form some ideas of what they might be. Um, but sticking with our mission and our philosophy is very much we've identified probably three three or four different potential next products. And so now we're madly in um, going back and talking to our investors, looking at the data of what we've learned so far, understanding much more about what people might want, wh why they want it, um, and, and that will inform what comes next and next after that. How has your backgrounds, in uh, both of you have backgrounds in startups, you, Kristen, working in Whipster, which um, for people who uh, may not be familiar with it, is like a world-class uh, startup that helps people kind of comment and collaborate on video uh, edits. And you were instrumental in um, a lot of its growth over some really kind of like key times. And and with the work that you've done in startups too, like my tours there, Natalie, like what does what, what have you managed to bring from that startup life and bring into a corporate structure? Mm. Well, we certainly don't operate like a corporate. And what's so cool is that um, I'll get to my kind of bring what experience I brought in because we've both brought um, a huge amount in. But what we've noticed is that we've started to um, we've started to influence the wider corporate in ways that we act. And, and I think because we've been able to exhibit how a traditional startup would act and all of the fantastic, you know, cultural elements that come along with that and camaraderie and passion and mission um, that we've actually had, you know, real level of influence over the wider business and probably actually the, with the wider banking group. I think people are excited to see a group of people that have um, a purpose, that wake up every day excited about what they're doing, um, that have a real strong sense of community, um, really enjoy hanging out with each other, have a very strong um 
dedication to being, you know, exceptional and bold and all of these values that you don't traditionally talk about in in a traditional financial services company. But they're thinking, wow, like we want some of what they've got. And so um, we've actually seen some really cool transformation in the wider business. But with respect to the stuff I brought, I, I mean, I've named some of it. I think the coolest thing about um, the startup space is that um, ability to be really bold and do something really hard. Hard, very hard, um, in a in a very noisy world where you're just trying to be heard. You're just trying to make a difference. Um, and um, I think just joining together as a small group of people that care so much about carving that path and making that difference um, is probably something that I'll seek for the rest of my life. Um, you know, hopefully hatch for a long, long time. But I think it's, gosh, I couldn't imagine living any other way and not coming into work with a group of people that are really intent on doing something and being bold about it. And if it means um, being controversial or making people uncomfortable, that's what we love to do. And so I think I learned that in the startup space um, about what really team means. Um, and also uh, no egos, like absolute. <laughs> I mean, when you graduate from university, it's so funny because it's like, I'm going to run the world. And you come out and you're like, oh, my God, I'm doing data entry. And then you work your way up to like a certain job. And you're like, I'm so important because, you know, what's the next step? Office. And then you get into a startup and um, it's like, nah, there's none of that. It's like you're rubbing shoulders with your mates and you're, oh, my gosh, washing your own dishes. And like, whoa, is me. No, but like it's really... <laughs> It's like this thing where you're like, I'm actually like answering customer support tickets at 11 o'clock at night. Like, my God, what's happened? And so I think that's like, there's just no ego. And you're just like, get your hands dirty, get in, get the stuff done, because that's what we're here to do. And um, that's kind of what I brought, I think, to Hatch personally. And um, we're doing the best we can do. I, I suppose I did it slightly different out of uni. I started my first startup basically in uni, and I've never had a job. <laughs> um and I'm almost 35. <laughs> um, so my so my whole experience is um, either working as a UX designer before that was even a thing, um, product person, um, and starting a whole range of startups. And I think I have a particular skill in starting the exact right thing at the exact wrong time. Um, so I've done Except for really, Hatch. Yeah. Um, well, and maybe not even exactly the right thing, but we've had varying degrees of success with varying things. So, um, But what I think I've spent the last five years, you know, it gets a bit tiring after a while. Um, so I think I've spent the last five or so years going into a widest range of companies as possible and really understanding how different companies work, what works well, what doesn't work well. Understanding from my own experience about self-funding startups, getting funded through startups, all of them very small time, um, and had a really strong idea of what I think would really work. Um, and so when I first spoke to Kristen, and I was in all honesty quite skeptical hearing about this idea of a corporate startup. I mean, I think we've all heard of that before and sand pits and bean bags and whiteboards. Um, was when we actually got stuck in and started doing it, not only is it a personal interest of mine, I've invested in stuff for years, I think more especially as a crazy feminist, which I've just heard recently, you don't have to add the crazy because that's the assumption when you announce yourself as a feminist, um, that, that I, I truly believe especially more women should be investing. So coming into Hatch was very, for me, the opportunity to try and test out all the stuff that I've learned over the last 14 odd years doing stuff. Um, so for me, it was very much like Kristen said, following up on that is, is really sticking strongly to our beliefs about how things should be done, taking a, a, an honest customer centric approach, doing the research, being bold and, and 
by that we mean not just playing lip service to it. If our customers say we won't do this or if they seem like they won't or if the evidence shows they're not, don't just follow your gut, follow what what you're seeing. Um, and I think the having fun has been, it sounds kind of flippant, but um, especially in a corporate environment, you have to sort of appear serious to be taken seriously. And I think what we've achieved so far has kind of has flipped a lot of people's opinions on how you can actually get stuff done. You can get it done fast and you can get it done very well. Um, yeah, so for me, it was just proving out a model of the things that do and don't work and um, and trying it with a an awesome environment with an awesome team that I think we all kind of believe in the same idea. So, And did people tell you it couldn't be done? doing this inside a corporate environment. Did people tell you you were bananas? Yeah, it was interesting. I think everyone was waiting for us to fail. Like, I don't think uh, they needed to tell us. Yeah, I think, they no. just <laughs> I think pretty much it was like, yeah, yeah, we'll just throw a little bit of money. No, certainly not the key stakeholders, but the the you know, it's not it's not hard to say who are these people and what are they doing and what's the point? Why are we throwing money over there when we can be doing something else? And I think it was really just uh, this will be wrapped up in no time. So it was more of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's putting it nicely, I think, Simon. I think. I think um, it's um, there's not many cases of a successful you know startup that's come out um, of a corporate or corporate innovation lab, and there's so many reasons for that. Um, there have been absolutely a few, and I just think you get the ingredients right, you get the stakeholders mm -hmm. that are behind it. Um, you've got to get the funding, and so we pitch to our shareholders very much like a startup would pitch to their investors. It's no different. We just happen to be getting our money from you know um, different a different type of investor, uh, and then yeah. I think it's you just get the right team and you you execute well and um, you stand your ground. And so I think, um, yeah, I don't think any of us were surprised that we did it. I don't think there was any doubt that we were going to do it. So it was just not listening to the noise. Um, I think we went in knowing the risks. And, I, and to me, the biggest risk is very much along the line of diluting down your dream um, because there's so much pressure to do it. Everyone at a high level says, we want to innovate, we want to disrupt. But when it comes to partnering with a US brokerage company, the due diligence involved, suddenly it's a bit like, Oh, how, like how much can we do this? How long can we take? And and sticking with our philosophy of being bold and saying we will do this, um, and not watering it down, and not being a slightly lesser version, and not compromising. Which I, to me, that was probably the hardest part. Is to, and it still continues to be because there's always pressure to just try and do it a little bit less because it feels a bit safer. Um, so I would say that's almost our biggest accomplishment as well. And where I think corporate startups, when they succeed, how they succeed, because they get the ultimate benefit of being well-funded with um, both financial, but also having the support of we've got a great legal team, we get advisors from multiple parts of the company, but also not sort of giving into that corporate, that, the accidental corporate pressure mm -hmm. to do things the way it's always been done, mm -hmm. just just by being part of the corporate. Mm -hmm. And what advice would you give people who were trying to um, make something cool like this happen inside uh, environments that, you know, and it's not it's not like banks uh, or, or kind of, you know, financial um, organisations are rule-bound and um, slow-moving for fun. I mean, they do a lot of that stuff for mm. very, very good reasons mm. uh, as well. So, yeah, what, what are some recipes, some of the things that help to make those successful in those environments? I think there's a few things you can do. You can always do it on the side 
and do it on your own, particularly if you've got a real skill set in a certain area and you see a problem, because not all corporates are going to have the risk appetite to do it themselves. So you could certainly make a pitch. Um, I'm a strong believer. There should believer in having a tech leader or an innovation leader on an executive team. Um, if you don't have that, it's pretty tricky to push these things through. Um, but banks nowadays are starting to get with it. I mean, almost everyone has got a venture arm or an innovation lab, or they're supporting some sort of level of innovation. So there's ways to, um, you know, I think, um, certainly get involved. And if you're not getting any breakthroughs, absolutely do it on your own. There's, you know, enormous, if anything I've learned, there's so many problems to be solved in New Zealand. And granted, New Zealand's small, but it's a perfect place to start um, and to get to really get a um, business off the ground before going global if, if, if need be. And so I think um, I would just suggest do it. Um, in terms of advice, Nat and I are always available to chat, <laughs> tell some more stories. I think the community and learning off the community and collaborating with the community is huge. I think it's, um, I know, you know, New Zealand is pretty small and super welcoming and supportive. And so I think um, talking to people uh, and then validating the idea, you know, is there really a problem or is it just one that you personally have? Um, and, you know, is it a problem that friends and family don't have? And so we spent a lot of time at cafes. And I think if you're not willing to go pitch your idea to a stranger, um, then, yeah, you probably shouldn't try and get something off the off the ground. And so we spent tons of time, um, tons of time accosting people in cafes and um, just saying, does this resonate with you? And people are willing to give the time. Like if it's money and yet everyone's stressed about money, everyone feels out of control like it's okay um and 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 i just think people are willing to talk about that so spend some time with strangers to iterate iterate on the idea validate it and then of course the ultimate test is someone willing to sign up to beta list are they willing to pay for the solution but you can do all that in like three weeks it's not that hard you just take the first step and as a as a final thought here um one question we always like to ask people that come on is how do you define success I see that answer to this one. <laughs> um, I suppose, like I say, different different kind of background from most people. I think for me, success, and actually even having all these interviews with all these investors recently, and it kind of boils down to the same thing. We talk to a lot of people um, who talk a lot about retiring at 40, at 43. Um, and when you actually dig into what retiring means, it means I want to be able to choose what I want to what I work on. I want to be able to say I don't want to do this. I want to be able to go on holidays with my kids for a year. So so to me what I think I probably learned at about 23ish is success is living your best life now, um doing working on the stuff you love and and doing it really well and financially building yourself into a position that you can continue to do that, um, which I say is slightly different, I suppose, from most people's vision of success, because I think when you talk to a lot of people doing startup stuff, success is having a billion-dollar business, or have it, um, which I actually, I mean, in some cases is wonderful. What's also wonderful is, is having a sustainable, good, solid business that returns money to people, um, but also doing something really, really cool that you really, really believe in. And like we talk about, we do jog squad. We have this great team environment. Um, we we go away on holidays, living that life too. Yeah, 
that's that's so cool. I love that definition of success. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for coming to join us uh, today to talk. The service is called Hatch. You're able to find that on your internet machine. We've been talking today to Kristen Lundman, the General Manager, and Natalie Ferguson, the Head of Experience. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank guys. you. Thanks, Simon. And thank you so much to Tina Tiller for yeah, producing. Uh, Tina, who uh, every every one of these records happens around the edge of a workday. This one's happening at 7.54pm. Most of them happen around 7.54am. Thanks, mate for making them happen and thank you very much for listening you've been listening to business is boring presented by simon pound and brought to you by the spin-off and callahan innovation from the spin-off podcast network that was business is boring brought to you by spark lab Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.